All right, Luke 3 in your Bibles. Verses 1 through 14 this morning, the message of John the Baptist is the title of our sermon. Today we begin several messages on John the Baptist, who was without question one of the most important persons in all of history. A man who is a prototypical Old Testament prophet, called upon to make the path straight for the author of the New Covenant. And I'm going to mention this many times over the next several weeks. Don't miss it. An Old Testament prophet, the very prototype of what was the Old Covenant, of what was the law, paving the way for the New Covenant. Keep that in mind. That is so much a part of what we need to understand about John, of his ministry. That he represented the Old Testament, and he was the, announce, the announcer. He was the, the one who made the path straight for the New Testament. Today's message, in verses 1 through 14, focuses upon John's message. What did he say? Under whom did he say it? And how does it relate to us? We'll be covering a John's message with an eye, first to understand what it meant to those who he speaks unto, and then how it relates to us. And then over the next couple of weeks, we'll understand more of the significance of, of what John was saying, of how he was saying it, of who he was saying it unto, and all of those dynamics. So we're just going to jump right in today. You're in Luke chapter 3. Look with me at verse 1. The Bible says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of, of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and uh, Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Luke begins by establishing, once again, the historical setting for our narrative. And, and this is very important because a great deal of time has passed since the last event, right? We left Jesus at 12 years old. Remember, Jesus left the temple after his circumcision. They went back to Nazareth. The, the wise men come and they find him. He's probably, at that point, around two years old, maybe a little bit early, uh, younger than that. They find him. They give him the gifts. And they take those gifts and they flee to Egypt. He comes back around 4 AD when Herod dies, probably about four years old. They were in Egypt for just a couple of years. And then the next thing we see is in Luke, he's 12 years old. He goes to the temple. His parents leave at the end of the Passover. He decides to stay. And he's debating with the doctors and the scribes in the temple. They find him. They say, we were worried. He says, no, you're not. I need to be about my father's business. They say, nope, not right now. You need to submit yourself to us. He says, yes, ma'am. He says, yes, sir. He submits himself unto them. And so that was where we left Jesus at 12 years old. We find ourselves now much later in time. And that is why this historical reference is so important. Tiberius Caesar was the heir of Caesar Augustus, history tells us. And his reign began concurrently with Augustus, about two to three years before Augustus stepped down, Tiberius Caesar kind of stepped into a part of that place, and there was a very smooth transition between them in that sense. Uh, the testimony to his reign, uh, we can find in, in several ways throughout Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was actually renamed after he took, took, lead, took the lead in, in Rome as the Sea of Tiberius. There was also a city built called Tiberius on that sea, and you can find that uh, in various points in the Gospels where the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias, and that's why. Uh, Tiberius Caesar began his reign in approximately 14 AD, making the date of John's ministry here, having been in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, somewhere between 29 and 30 AD. And so John the Baptist was about 30 years old, and we'll find out a little bit later in this chapter that Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry, when he gets baptized, is about 30 years of age. Uh, now, this year may not have any significance, but it might have significance as well. As we consider the scriptures, Numbers chapter 4 tells us that the priests began their ministry at 30 years of age, and they went from 30 years of age till 50 years of age ministering actually in the tabernacle and then sub subsequently the temple. So uh, 30 was a pretty important benchmark for Jewish men as far as a ministry aspect was concerned. Ezekiel also began his prophetic ministry at the age of 30. It would not surprise us then perhaps that Jesus and John the Baptist both began their earthly ministries uh, at about 30 years old. I don't know that there's necessarily a demand for that. It didn't have to be 30, but we see this trend. And when you see trends in the Bible, it should at least tick that little trend button in your mind. 
I see a trend here, 30 years old, right? 30 years old, there's something about 30 years old. Luke doesn't just end, however, with giving the date as to Tiberius as a matter of historical context. He mentions Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Uh, his proper title was procurator. It was a civil and a military position. So he was the civil governor, but he was also a military leader. And there was kind of that merging of the, of the military and the civil there as a procurator. That was Pontius Pilate. He be began his procuratorship, if we could call it that, at, in, in 26 AD. So he had only been the procurator for a few years, three to four years, at the time that John the Baptist begins his ministry. And he, of course, would be still active as procurator when Jesus Christ is crucified as he is sent to Pontius Pilate, right? And so that gives us a little bit of that historical context. Uh, Luke mentions Herod, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee. The word Tetrarch means that he was the governor of a fourth of the territory. So the territory was split into four regions, and he was one of the four governors of that region. That's what the word Tetrarch means. And that whole would be the whole of Judea, and he was governor over um, oh, the whole of, I guess, that, that region. Uh, uh, and then he was governor specifically over Galilee. Uh, this would have been the son of Herod the Great, known to history as Herod Antipas or Antipater. He mentions that Herod's brother Philip was tetrarch of Etruria and Trachonitis, a region well north of Galilee. And then he also mentions uh, Lysanias, who was tetrarch of Abilene, also north of Galilee. So that gives us a little bit of the historical context, and that tells us here something. This gives us an indicator, just as we've seen throughout Luke. Luke is writing historical narrative here. That's what he's intending to do. This is not allegorical language. This is not prophetic language. This is historical narrative language here. He is attempting to, to tell us through his language that he is writing history. We continue in verse 2. The scriptures tell us Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Luke gives us an interesting insight into the workings of Jewish government in this time here. Those of you who have been through my intertestamental period class... Um, might know a little bit better how the Jewish government was set up. The Roman authorities gave quite a bit of latitude for the Jewish government system to kind of operate. Uh, it operated under the power of the Roman Empire. There were certain limits to the Jews' power. They could not condemn a man to death without the, the approval of Rome. Uh, they could not certainly do anything to a Roman citizen as they had rights under the law. But the the people that lived within the conquered regions of Rome, if they were not Roman citizens, did not have those same rights. And oftentimes, Rome allowed the governments that were already in the land to have latitude uh, with their own people as sort of vassal rulers of their own people. Annas was what we might call the legitimate high priest. He was the one who, if you, if you follow the bloodline, Annas would be the proper blood line priest. However, he had been deposed by the Roman government about 15 years prior. He'd been stripped of his power by the Romans. And so um, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was now the official Roman high priest. According to John 18, 13, uh, Annas was his father-in-law. And, and Annas, though he wasn't the high priest, he still maintained a great deal of influence over Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the official guy, but Annas was still, if we could call him the honorary high priest, he still had that position of respect. He still had Caiaphas's ear. He could still pull. He had a lot of pull. So that's why it says Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest at the time. Annas was there. He was not official. Caiaphas was official. But he listened to Annas, and Annas still ran a, a great deal of, of the legal and religious dynamics of the day in Israel. Caiaphas and Annas would both be there all the way through Jesus' trial and death as well. And the text tells us that during this time, during this time where Tiberius Caesar is ruling the empire, where uh, Herod is tetrarching Galilee, where Pontius Pilate is um, uh, the procurator where Annas and Caiaphas are, are the high priests. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. And notice this is the, John, the son of Zacharias. This is the same John we, we saw announced in, John, or in Luke chapter 1, right? 
And so he was in the wilderness, and the word of God comes to him. And in the manner of the prophet, John took these words and he began to proclaim them. Verse 3, he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The topic of John's message, this was not John's message, this was the context of John's message, the topic of his message was that they should receive a repentance baptism. A repentance baptism for the remission of sins. Repentance, as we often define it at Legacy Baptist Church, a change of thought or a change of mind which brings about a change of intent, purpose, action. Remission is a word which means to remove, to pardon, or to release. Now, it's important to understand that they were not receiving what we would call believers' baptism here. This is not a baptism into Jesus Christ's uh, message or ministry or into the church or anything like that. As a matter of fact, we'll find later that people are being baptized in Jesus' name, and there's a contention between John, John's disciples and Jesus' disciples over this. Uh, we'll find uh, certainly that there's a, an entirely different context of baptism and an entirely different qualification for baptism uh, in the book of Acts and following as it goes. Um, the church would not begin, as we believe it, until the day of Pentecost, until the day that the Holy Spirit came upon men. And so this would not be a baptism into the church. Remember what we have mentioned already. John is an Old Testament prophet coming with an Old Testament message to the Jewish people. And just as it is today in the church, baptism was used in Jewish culture to indicate association with a message. If you were not a Jew and you wanted to become a Jew, you wanted to proselytize into the Jewish faith, a part of what you would do would be to go through a baptism. Baptism was to, uh, to disassociate yourself with the idols and the gods of the pagans and to associate yourself with the God of the Old Testament. Uh, the manner of that message, the manner of John's message was that the nation of Israel should repent of their current spiritual apathy and align themselves, realign themselves with the law of God. It was a baptism of repentance, but it was a baptism intended to take the Jewish people who had wandered away from the law and realign them with the law. It did not have to do with Christ yet. It did not have to do with grace. This was a preparatory message, not a message of saying align with Jesus because Jesus hadn't come on the scene yet. This was prepare for Jesus align yourself with the law. And this is why it's so important that you understand John and what he represented here. John represented the law. And as, we, as I mentioned, we, as we continue through these messages, you're going to find, and we are going to find, that the law does not conflict with grace. It was, in fact, the means by which man was prepared for grace. The Old Testament law was intended to be that announcement of the perfection, announcement of its fulfillment. And we'll talk about that more in weeks to come. John's message was a message which condemned religious hypocrisy of the day and sought to call men unto the principles of the law, which we know from Scripture boil down to love thy God with all thy heart and love thy neighbor as thyself. Excuse me. And the people had long abandoned this. It was a preparatory message for the reception of Messiah but was not in itself sufficient to save anyone. The baptism did not produce the remission of sins. It's kind of difficult when you read this baptism of repentance for remission of sins. But what we, un what, what we, we recognize here is that it was not a baptism that produced remission of sins. It did not bring about the cleansing, but rather it was a step of association that the people needed to line themselves up with the coming Messiah who would bring remission of sins. Do you understand the difference? A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. John came to a self-righteous group who thought that they were going to heaven simply because they were Jewish. They saw themselves as personally righteous through their conformity to their interpretation of the law. And John was calling them to understand that they were sinners in need of a Messiah. Just as with any generation, a person will not accept a solution to a problem he doesn't think he has, right? Every Jew who saw themselves as sufficient and righteous in themselves because they were children of Abraham, because they kept some element of the externals of the law, 
could never receive, would never be ready to receive the gospel at the mouth of the Messiah. If they were living in self-righteousness, thinking that they were okay, they would not receive Messiah. So John was coming to call them out of their self-righteousness, call them into a repentance of that self-righteousness, and then to prepare themselves for the remission of sins that would be brought by Messiah. He was calling them to humble themselves, to acknowledge their sin, and to prepare themselves for Messiah. That was his ministry. And I really want to be clear on this, because this point is not agreed upon in the church today. Depending on how we interpret this verse, we could say that this is a baptism that brought about the remission of sins. And in the Greek, it's somewhat ambiguous. It can be a valid translation to say that this baptism brought about the remission of sins. But this is where sound principles of interpretation have to come in. When we approach a questionable passage, and whether it's this passage or any passage, when we approach a questionable passage, the first thing that we have to do is rule out what that passage cannot mean because of what we know the Scriptures teach us as a whole. And we use clear elements of Scripture. We use the clarity of other passages to help us interpret the less clear. You use that which is clear to interpret that which is not clear. Hebrews 9.22 tells us this, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Baptism doesn't shed any blood, right? There's no shedding of blood in a baptism. Nor had there been any shedding of blood for which this baptism could align. Indeed, we read of the source of this remission in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Romans 3 tells us clearly that Jesus Christ is the remission of our sins through His blood. Jesus Christ's blood remits our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So with that biblical definition of play in place, understanding that there would be a subsequent baptism into Jesus that was different from the baptism into John's message, we understand then that this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins cannot mean, biblically, it cannot mean that John's baptism brought remission of sins. And that word for, that preposition, is somewhat ambiguous, right? And you notice there the Greek preposition for, uh, that, that is represented in the translation for, is also fairly ambiguous. It can mean purpose, that the baptism is for the purpose or result of remitting sins, right? But that's where we said it contradicts other passages in the Bible. It can't mean this because that would mean that our Bible contradicts. Rather, we would see the preposition here to be used with reference to remission of sins. A baptism of repentance with reference to a coming, with respect to a coming, in preparation for a coming remission of sins. And that, that makes perfect sense. God promised all Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, that one day He would come and He would remove their sins from them, right? Isaiah 27, verse 9. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin, when he maketh all stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and the images shall not stand. The idea that there's coming a day when the iniquity of Jacob will be purged where there's coming a day when there will be remission of sins. And as they look toward this day, John says, look, that day is coming. Align yourself with the law so you can be ready to receive it. Paul would state in Romans 11, 26 and 27, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Right? There's coming a day when God will take away the sins of the nation. 
it's been promised. John says, it's been promised, it's coming. This baptism is to realign yourself with the law, it's to align yourself with repentance unto that day when remission of sins is coming. That was the message that John was preaching. The one God promised he would send to remit their sins has come. Submit to a baptism through which you will confess your sinful state, your need for a Savior, your readiness to accept that Savior who will bring with him that remission. I hope that makes sense. If I may summarize, in order that we get this clear. The baptism of repentance for the remission of sins means an act of personal alignment with John's message that they were sinners in need of a Savior who would offer unto them, that would be the Savior offering unto them, remission of sins. At the time of John the Baptist's ministry, there was a, a dominion theology in Israel which was convinced that if they could just become good enough, if the nation of Israel could just become good enough, clean enough, if they could just hit the checklist of the law well enough, if they could obey the laws nationally, then Messiah would come and he would already find a ready-made people, right? Messiah would come, the people would be ready-made, and then all he'd have to do is destroy his enemies and that would be done. They completely discounted the fact that the Bible promises that when Messiah came, he would remove their sin implying that they still would have a sin problem when Messiah came, right? That they still would have an issue that needed to be dealt with. They thought, we've been dealing with this issue on our own pretty well. That's what the Pharisees were all about. That's what the nationalism was all about. We're getting rid of anything and everything that's bad in us so that Messiah will, will find us a people worthy of him. But John didn't come preaching this message. He didn't come preaching this sort of dominion theology that you need to make yourself good enough. He came preaching a message that said you can never be good enough. You didn't need more self-righteousness. You need more repentance. And when they were in that state of repentance, then God could send his Messiah not first to destroy their enemies, but first to remit their sins, to remove them. And then he could destroy their enemies. Once the sins had been removed, God could give them all those promises. And that's the message given all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament working seamlessly together. God must first deal with sin, and then he can bless. But sin must first be dealt with. And God told Israel all throughout the Old Testament, I must take care of your sin, and then I will give you the promises. We've spoken of this several times in the past week showing you how God's promise was to give them a new heart, to take away their stony heart, to forgive their sins so that he could bless them the way he desired to bless them. And that was the baptism that John brought, the remission of sins which John preached. And as John preached this message, Luke tells us that he did so as a fulfillment of the prophets. Verses 4 through 6 say, as it is written. And whenever you see that phrase, as it is written in your New Testament, you know that they're going to be quoting the Old Testament or at least paraphrasing various Old Testament passages. As it is written, he says, in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, that would be Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is quoting from Isaiah 40, uh, verses 4 and 5, not verse 6. Verses 4 and 5 quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight the in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And then in verse 6, Luke switches from quoting from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 52.10, where we read... The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God promised that the way would be prepared for the Lord. God promised that the, that the Lord would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. John's message was not that he was that salvation, but rather that he was the one to prepare the way. And he did it through this baptism of repentance. 
And John became very popular. If I may say it this way, he became a fad in the land. And it actually became a bit of a problem because the people started coming not actually to align with his message, but rather to be seen aligning with his message. To be seen getting the baptism as a means of making themselves look righteous in the eyes of others. His baptism was being used for the very self-righteous purpose that John was preaching against. And this is typical of, of humanity, right? That when a good thing starts happening, there's always people that jump on that bandwagon because it's comfortable and they want to be a part of it too and they want to be seen in that light. And so John, as he sees these men coming who are there simply to be seen of men to fulfill their own self-righteous purposes, the exact opposite of everything that John was preaching, he had some very harsh words for them. And we read those harsh words in verses 7 through 9. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now in, in Luke he mentions only that these words were sent out to the multitude. And that sounds pretty harsh. But in Matthew account, we receive a little more insight into this, into who it was that came along uh, that John had trouble with, that John looked at and said, I don't know that you're quite ready to be baptized. And we read of this in Matthew 3, verse 7, which says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those self-righteous ones, those, the Sadducees being the religious liberals of the day, they denied the resurrection. They denied that there was actually even a spiritual realm. They denied angels. They denied demons. They denied anything that could not be proven materialistically. Those were the Sadducees. They were, they were the, the, the spiritual liberals of the day. They would be our Unitarian Universalists today. The Pharisees were the legalists of the day. They were the ones who had their checklist. They were the ones who had uh, all of their, their ducks in a row on the outside, but inside they were just as big of a mess or bigger of a mess than anyone else. They were hateful. They were judgmental. They were bigotous. They, they were nationalistic to a fault. They were the legalists of the day. They were, they were the ones that were on the complete other end of the spectrum. And as John became a fad, you know, of course, first you have the genuine people, right? Yes, repentance, we need that. Yes, Messiah is coming, I want that. And they submit to the baptism. But then as everyone is saying, hey, hey, there's a new prophet. We haven't had a prophet since Malachi. We haven't had anyone stand up and say, thus saith the Lord in, in 450 years. This is new, this is exciting. Here's the, the reinvigoration of the prophet in the, in the spirit of Elijah. He says that he is the one to make the path straight for the Messiah. He says Messiah is coming and the Pharisees and Sadducees say, oh, we need to get in on the ground floor of this. Oh, when Messiah comes, we want to we be a part of that. So let's, let's, let's get in on this. For them, it was a religious stunt to impress others. And so that they could seem really in tune with the people who rightly understood John to be a prophet. But John would have none of it. He calls them a generation of vipers. And he says, who's warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? It's a fitting analogy as they were out in the wilderness. There would be vipers out there, uh, snakes out there, small, wily, deadly. He saw both the conservatives and the liberals, both the legalists and those that denied the scriptures entirely from the other spectrum. And he called them one and the same, a group of lying, dangerous, deadly men who would lead all who followed them into deep spiritual error. As a matter of fact, Jesus would condemn the Pharisees and Sadducees and say, you will go across the world to make one disciple and make them far more, multiple times more a child of hell than they were before, right? You will confirm them in their error, confirm them in their wickedness. He says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? He questions their motives here. Are they actually there to repent of their spiritual blindness and align themselves with John's message? That the nation was in need of a Messiah to save them from their sins? That they needed salvation? That they needed something they didn't have? Or were they there simply to be a part of a popular movement and to confirm their own self-righteousness? That's what he's asking there. 
And then he tells them, if they want to be identified with the repentance that John was teaching, much more than just the baptism, they needed to live it. John was effectively telling them that there was no way they could associate with this repentance of John while simultaneously doing the things that they were doing. And if they wanted to reflect the repentance that they say was in their hearts, it would take more than baptism, it would take action. And take note, we'll read in just a moment that the Pharisees and Sadducees were not the only ones that he said these sorts of things to. He's calling for the people to manifest the fruit of repentance. Yeah, you can be dunked in water, people, but then bring forth the fruit of that repentance. Make that repentance obvious in your action. He'll talk to the publicans. He'll talk to the people. He'll talk to the soldiers. But note also how it is that John says this. He makes it clear that the works themselves would not be the repentance. This is important. He doesn't say, bring forth fruit that is your repentance. Bring forth works so that you have repented. He says, bring forth the fruit that is worthy of repentance. Bring forth that which indicates the, something on the outside that indicates that something has changed on the inside. He was calling for an outward sign of the inward heart of repentance to be the fruit of renouncing their corrupt and, political, and hypocritical worship system. If you want to prove that you have repented and you have aligned yourself with the law, well, then you need to stop this, Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees, you cannot say that you deny the resurrection. You cannot say that you deny the spirit world and yet say that you have submitted yourself to the, to, to the, the repentance baptism of John. Pharisees, you cannot say, you cannot continue in your, your legalistic judgmentalism and your, your hypocrisy and your look-at-me attitude and say that you have rightly submitted yourself to the repentance baptism of John. You can't do that. They, they con contradict each other. You may have gotten yourself wet, Pharisee or Sadducee, but there's nothing in your heart that changed, and I know that because nothing in your sinful actions have changed. There's nothing in your heart that indicates that you even care. That's what John was saying here. As he tears down the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he, he invalidates one of their key arguments, which, by the way, is also the argument of Orthodox Jews today. He tells them that they're not exempt from judgment simply because they're children of Abraham. The Orthodox Jews today believe that just as much as the, the Orthodox Jews back then believed that. I'm a child of Abraham. We are God's chosen people. Therefore, we have a get-out-of-jail-free card. And John says, don't even think it. Because you see these stones that are all around me? God could take these stones and make children of Abraham. He's warning these false religious leaders that their physical heritage will not save them from spiritual damnation. And John warns that there's coming a day when God will judge the hearts of every man. And he uses the imagery of God putting an axe to the bottom of every tree. And the condition upon which God will decide whether or not he cuts that tree down is not their ties to Israel, it's not their ties to Abraham, but whether or not they have brought forth an alignment with Messiah. Whether or not they accept the Messiah. And what he's doing here is the very essence of the law's function. John is functioning as the prototypical Old Testament prophet calling men to align themselves with the law of God, exposing the self-righteous and their incapacity to keep the law of God so that they would say there is something missing, there is something wrong with me, I need something more, God, please send me that more. And that more was coming because Messiah was coming and he would give the gospel and anybody who had truly aligned themselves with the law of God in genuine faith would also align themselves with Messiah. So John is saying, align yourself with the law. Get right with God's message. Get right with God's intent so that when Messiah comes, you'll be ready for him. Paul would say it this way in Galatians 3, verses 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promises by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Romans eleven twenty two, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Jew, Gentile, male, female, it doesn't matter. You're all in unbelief. 
so that I can have mercy on you all. We'll discuss that more in the coming weeks. God's intention in the law, which we, will dis- we discuss thoroughly in our Galatians series, we'll discuss a little bit more in the weeks to come. And that Galatians series is online if you're interested in listening to it. Was that the law was there to lead the men into, a rea- into the understanding that they needed Christ. But instead, the, the Jews made the law manageable, right? They made the checklist manageable so that they could do it all. And they excused themselves of anything they couldn't do. And they made everything else the marks of holiness so that they could be self-righteous. John is doing here what the law was designed to do. He is breaking down their self-righteousness and demanding good fruit. And when they say, "Uh uh-oh, I have fallen short, I need to align myself with God, and they get on their knees and they say, Lord, I repent and I am ready. Then when Messiah comes along and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I am he. There's my Messiah. There's my Savior. There's my salvation unto remission of sin. And in the hearts of many it worked. Look at verses 10 through 14. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? How do we bring forth the fruit of repentance? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. I'm sorry, there was a little duplication there. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So several groups come to John and ask him, What must we do? What are the fruit of repentance? How can we, as those who are urgently desiring to align ourselves with the law of God, to align ourselves with the Spirit of God, how do we do that? And and John hits each group. Now, remember what we've mentioned already. These actions are not the repentance themselves. The very fact that they're coming to John and they're saying, what must I do, shows that their heart is already there, right? That's the repentance. The heart is there. The mind has changed. They're ready to do something about it. And they say, what, what should we do? How can we bear this fruit? Outward manifestation of an inward heart of repentance. The people have aligned themselves. And to the Jewish people, to the people, he says, give to the poor. If you have two coats, give one to your brother. If you have two pieces of meat, give one to a man that has none. Give to those who are in need. The Jews saw riches as a mark of God's blessing. If you were rich, you were righteous. If you were poor, you were unrighteous. And so for them to give that which they had to the poor, they looked down upon the poor. They said the poor are not worthy. Interesting, Jesus went to the poor, right? But they said, no, nope, the poor are not worthy. The poor obviously are sinful because they're poor. James, James condemns this heavily if you read the, the Gospel of James, or the, the book of James, excuse me. Epistle, that was the word I was looking for. So this would have been a big deal for a Jew to say, yes, I'll give half, I'll give what I, of my plenty to that, him that has none. And that would reflect their heart of humble preparation for Messiah. The publican. A publican was a tax collector. He was a sellout. He was somebody who worked for the Roman government, but he was a Jew, and he went and he collected taxes. And here's the interesting things about the the publicans. The publicans, they had a certain amount that they had to take for their taxes, for the Romans. Then they had an amount apportioned to them that was given to them above that, which they were allowed to exact as their payment. So you go to a guy, and he owes 100 bucks to the Romans, and the Romans say, "You, you, you take $120, you give us the hundred and you keep the leftover. You're apportioned that extra percentage for yourself out of their, out of everyone's taxes. However, the tax collector could actually take as, as much as he wanted. He didn't have to stop at that, that percentage that Rome said to take. And so tax collectors were, were well known, the publicans were, were well known for exacting far more from the people than was right. They would take what Rome wanted, and then they would take far more for themselves than had been apportioned to them. So John says, hey, publicans, you want to show the fruit of repentance? You want to show that your mind has changed, that you want to do right? Only take what's been given to you by the government. Don't take a penny more. And then the soldiers come, and they say, what should we do? The soldiers, probably those who were protecting the publicans. That would be my guess, because the publicans had to be protected. They always had soldiers around them, or else they'd probably be beaten up. Nobody liked them. 
And so the soldier said, what must we do? Well, John actually gives many problems with them. They were men of violence. They treated people with force. They treated people with contempt. They said, we've got the weapons and you don't, so you do what we want. They were falsely accusing men for various reasons. They would get people in trouble to to save their own hides, right? This is kind of like the bad cop of the day. Now, cops are getting a bad rap today, but, but there's bad ones out there, right? There's the ones that use excessive use of force. They're the ones that, that plant evidence in order to get people into trouble that wouldn't otherwise be, be in trouble. That's what these soldiers would do as well. Excessive use of force, planting evidence, your word against mine court system, and then they would complain about their wages all the time. And this, of course, made them susceptible to bribery. So John says, hey, you want to bring forth the fruit of repentance? Stop beating people up. Stop being a corrupt soldier. Stop taking uh, bribes. Stop doing those things. And stop fussing about your wages. Just do your job. Now, we'll pick up next week at that point. We're going to stop there this week. This is the message of John. The baptism of of repentance for the remission of sins. And as we close, we need to consider some of these points for our own application and edification. And I'm going to do so in in perhaps a little bit more of a vague way today. But as we do so, we need to be careful. John was not giving the gospel here. Uh, He was preparing a self-righteous Jewish culture for the gospel. Jesus came with the gospel. John came with the good news that the gospel was coming. The good news that Messiah was coming. And yet many of the principles which he laid down are still important for us to understand today. And while we have hit the highlights already, I'd like us to to kind of bring them down into a focused way as we try to typically do during our application. So point number one, just and they're all going to be about salvation, about this, uh, more vague this morning, not really points of action as much as points of thought. Point number one, about salvation. I cannot emphasize enough that what John was doing here was not a salvation by baptism or by reformation. Salvation is and always has been by grace through faith without any works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The gospel says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that you need a savior. That's what the law was intended to do. It was intended to break men down, to see that they cannot please God, that there's no way we can please God, that every time we try to do something that does please God in and of ourselves, we're simultaneously digging the pit deeper, one step forward and three steps back every single time. We in and of ourselves cannot please God. Jesus of Nazareth is God, come in flesh to be that Savior. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. And on the cross, the Bible says that God took his wrath and punishment for our sin and he placed it on Christ so that the provision could be made for Christ's righteousness to be placed on you. Jesus died. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead, claiming victory over death, claiming victory over sin, proving that he could do everything he said he could do, establishing himself as the victorious authority over all things in heaven and in earth. And if you will receive that truth that you can't do it, but that's okay because Jesus Christ already did, then you'll be saved. No one will be in heaven because... They were baptized. No one will be in heaven because they went to church. No one will be in heaven because they manifested some gift of the Spirit. No one will be in heaven because they were a good person. No one will be able to boast of anything on that day because the only merit which anyone has when they stand redeemed in heaven, whether it's for their salvation or whether it's for the blessings and the rewards that will come of righteous living, the only merit will be found as we lived out Christ through faith. Accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ into salvation, then walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, thereby doing what is right. So that's about salvation reminding us of that that basic premise. John was not 
leading people to, to Christ here in that sense of salvation, just in that sense of leading them unto Messiah, pointing them in his direction. About repentance, secondly. Uh, we define repentance at Legacy Baptist Church as a change of thought, a change of mind, which brings about a change of action, intent, purpose. Uh, there's a huge controversy in the church today, probably even among those in the seats today, about the role of repentance in salvation and also in sanctification. Uh, we at Legacy Baptist Church are not a church that preaches a repentance salvation and take issue with many of the churches that do, but that does not mean we don't recognize a role of repentance in the process of salvation. Like with everything, there's a spectrum, and it all depends on how you define your terms, right? It's not that the term repentance is necessarily wrong to use in conjunction with salvation, but I take issue, and our church officially takes issue with how some people use it, because they preach a repentance gospel that basically tells people, if you didn't reform, or if you don't reform, then God won't accept you. And they put the cart before the horse, and they, they make people feel like they have to change before they can come to Christ. That you have to have a change of mind, that you have to put away your sin and then come to Christ, which is the wrong order. It's not how it works. You don't put away your sin to come to Christ. You don't turn from your sin to turn to Christ. You turn to Christ, and it happens that as you turn to Christ, you're turning away from your sin. That as you submit yourself to the Spirit of God, and as the Spirit of God begins to strengthen in you, the sin falls away. But if we put the cart before the horse, and that's the danger. I don't, it, it's not, many people that preach a, re a repentance gospel, they, they have it right, but the term itself can start to muddy the water if you're not careful. Because what, you're, what, what you can lead yourself to say, or lead people to understand, is that they have to somehow change themselves before they come to Christ. Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. I can't repent of my sin until I've turned to Christ. I can't, I can repent, but can I, can I actually remove the sin from my life before I turn to Christ? Well, then why do I need to turn to Christ if I can remove the sin from my life? That's the danger. That's, that's the issue in conservative Christianity if you hear argument about this. Hebrews 6.1 gives a great definition of where of the role repentance plays in salvation. I believe Paul speaking. He's writing, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation. And this is what he says is the foundation. The foundation of the principles of Christ. He says, It's repentance from dead works and faith toward God. I love this. This is it. You want to talk about repentance as it relates to salvation? I believe this verse gives it perfectly. The repentance necessary to be saved is a repentance from dead works. Dead works would be anything or everything that a person is trusting him in for what? To get him to heaven, right? If I think this work can get me to heaven, that's a dead work. That's a work that I'm trying to do. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, cannot have a part in salvation. And so I repent from the dead works. In order for a person to be saved, he must recognize that no work can get him to heaven. He must change his mind about his self-righteous efforts to earn merit with God. And he must humbly place his full faith and trust in God's way of salvation, namely the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We do not believe repentance to mean that a person turns from their sins to be saved because you can't do that until you've been saved. That's the Spirit of God that does that in you. We don't have to discipline sin out of our lives. We might need to put in disciplines to help us do right, but the Spirit of God removes sin from our lives as we submit to Him. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. We believe in the simplicity of salvation by faith alone, with man turning from any and every trust to trusting Christ alone to be saved. And as an added insight into this concept, I encourage you to do a study sometime about that word repent in the Bible. You'll find that the word means what, what we've said it to mean. A change in, uh, in mind. Either about God, about our relationship to God, or even in many cases, the word is used of God himself. That God repents of the evil that he was going to do. You'll find as well that the word is often, most often used among Jewish listeners in our Bibles. 
who would have had a much stronger self-righteous inclination than perhaps the Gentile world that was steeped in paganism. And so they know the depths of their own sinful depravity. A person has no idea, who has no idea how to get to heaven, has not really been trusting in dead works, right? If he's never thought about it, he's not trusting in dead works. He's not trusting in anything to get himself to heaven, or he thinks, I'm not even going to get there. I'm, I'm a bad guy. Well, there's not a lot of repentance from dead works that needs to be there. There simply needs to be the faith toward God. He doesn't have to replace his thinking because his thinking has never been set, settled to begin with. But the religious among us who think that they can get to heaven through some effort or character of their own, it is these that are most in need of this concept of repentance. To repent from everything and anything that their thinking can get them to God and to trust Christ alone. That being said, repentance from dead works and faith toward God will produce results. And let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. Those results will be at different speeds based upon how much they're discipled, how much they understand, but repentance will produce results. John says that, right? You can come and you can say that you've repented and you can get baptized, but bring forth the fruit of repentance. When a person has repented from dead works and put their faith toward God, the Spirit of God begins, indwells them, and things will change. It doesn't mean everything will change immediately, but things will change. The process of sanctification will begin The fruit of repentance is what happens when that person begins to change. Their thinking begins to change. All of a sudden, they don't understand things that they thought they understood, or they understand them differently. Oftentimes, people say it's like blinders fell off their eyes. And all of a sudden, they saw the world in a different light. I was at a creation speech last night. A man uh, who works for uh, a creation um, ministry... And he was talking about one of his colleagues. And he said his colleague worked at Cornell University for 20 years. He was an evolutionary scientist. And then he and his wife were having marital problems. So they went to a a, a marriage conference. And they both got saved. And then over the next five years, he, he, about five years after he got saved, was the point where he finally said evolution is impossible. And he became a creationist. And of course, he was a, a tenured professor at Cornell University. And this caused some major, major issues. The thinking began to change, though. And at some point, he could have continued to live the lie, denying himself, trying to balance things that didn't balance. But if he was going to be honest with himself through the Spirit of God, something had to change because his mindset, his perspective, everything changed. Because all of a sudden, this book means something, right? That, 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 that mindset, that change, that was the Spirit of God within him. That was, that was the... the the, the beginning of the fruit of repentance. And it worked its way out in his life through that full understanding. And that's the fruit of repentance. When we stop saying the things we once said, doing the things we once did, all of that, that comes in time. That stuff falls away as we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God. It may take years. For others, it takes minutes. At the moment of salvation, a person develops a mindset whereby they have decided to follow Christ. Then over time, as they learn who Christ is and what he expects, as they understand him, the areas of their lives that stand in inconsistency with Christ will change. Or they will live in deep carnality and chastening of God. They can be carnal. They can walk in rebellion. They can even regress. You can can regress in your Christian life. But the mindset will be forever changed. They know they're rebelling against the true and living God if they're a believer. Repentance is not just a salvation thing, however. In the life of a believer, repentance is also a sin thing. When a believer is living in sin and they are called out on their sin and they understand it, it produces within them repentance, a change in their mind about their sin, and that produces results which are Obedience. We read of believer repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is often used in the context of salvation. This is not salvation here. Paul is writing to a group of believers in the church about him, him confronting them about their sin in 1 Corinthians. And he says, Now I rejoice that ye were made sorry, but uh, not, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. You say, Pastor, but salvation is in that context. 
do a study on the, on the word salvation. We've done it before in the church. It does not always mean being born again. In fact, majority of the times, it does not mean being born again in the Bible. There's no question that this was written to believers. And they changed their path from that of deep rebellion and carnality against God to getting realigned with God as Paul had to rake them across the coals, as Paul had to pound it into them. And 1 Corinthians is a harsh, harsh letter. He said, I didn't want to make you sad, but I knew that you needed to repent. So I confronted you on your sin so that you would repent of your sin so that you could be saved from this direction that you're headed on. Now, we cannot dwell on it, but if this concept troubles you some, come see me. We can talk about it some more. Repentance produces an immediate change of mind, bears fruit in an eventual change of purpose, intent, and action. Repentance needed to bring a born-again believer is not repentance from sin, but a repentance from dead works, anything and everything we might be trusting in. The repentance from sin might be there as well, but it's not always. Repentance from sin is the natural outworking of God's word in the lives of believers as they are confronted with their ways which are wrong, which are inconsistent with Christ, and they are called to realign themselves with, with Christ. Hastening on about the church. I know there's so much content here. We're almost finished. There's a portion of the church today, particularly of the Baptist church, in fact who believes that the church began with John the Baptist. They say John was the first Baptist. That's not what that word Baptist there means. It means just means John the Baptizer. They call John the first Baptist. They attempt to trace the roots of the church all the way back to him. And, and this is kind of a lazy way out when it comes to validating one's denominational ties. Uh, while we believe that we are part of an unceasing thread of Bible believers that can be traced through post-Pentecost history, and while an important part of that thread, we believe, is the doctrine of baptism after salvation, which is a part of what makes us distinctive as Baptists, as we've already mentioned quite strongly, the baptism of John was not believer's baptism. And to prove it, I reference you to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be an Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? Well, what were you baptized unto? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, Aha, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Clear distinction here. John's baptism unto repentance, which was unto Christ. Jesus' baptism unto belief. In Christ. Doesn't get much more clear than that as we see this differentiation. The mark of the church is a unity of men, women, and children through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit was not present until Pentecost, and so we assert that the church did not begin with John, the baptizer, but rather with the indwelling Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Must move on. Final point as we close about individual soul liberty. John told the multitude in verse 8 Begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Every man, woman, and child in here needs to understand, and particularly our second generation Christian children, or third generation, or whatever generation you are, children. Your family does not determine in any way your standing before God. Your church does not determine in any way your standing before God. A portion of what Israel was believing in for securing their right standing with God was their relationship to this man thousands of years earlier named Abraham. It was not uncommon of. It's not, even today it's not uncommon to cross, to come across folks who believe that they have some special standing with God because of their relationship. I can't tell you how many times I've knocked on a door of somebody in Buffalo and I've asked them about their salvation and they've said, yeah, my uncle's a preacher. It's always an uncle or an aunt or something. It's, you know, it's not mom or dad. It's always an uncle. My uncle's a preacher. 
My uncle was this. My, my, my brother was that. Yeah, I know a lot of those. As if somehow that's supposed to mean something. It doesn't mean a thing. They say, oh yeah, I'm a part of that church. As if somehow that's supposed to mean something. What is, I asked you if you're going to heaven. Yeah, I'm a part of that church. What, what is that? That doesn't help me. I'm a part of a church too. But how, how are you going to heaven? What, do you know you're going to heaven? We are in a church with many wonderful devout Christians here. But your relationship to those wonderful and devout Christians, whether as children or grandchildren, parents, grandparents, members, secure for you no special privilege with God. Each person has the liberty to choose for himself his spiritual course. And this means that each person also bears the responsibility to choose for himself his own spiritual course. And you will stand before God and account for that. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation, seeking not to draw attention to himself, but focusing that attention upon Christ and the salvation that he would bring. It was an exciting time, but it was also a time of tremendous change. Today we live within the constant turmoil of a changing world, but in a church which rests grounded upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and the completed word of God. For this we can be thankful, but it also means we need to be careful. As we've considered today, it is easy for the principles of settled doctrine to unsettle us. Like with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we can become self-righteous. And in doing so, we can fail to see what God has plainly set before us. Like those that have come before, we can get lazy. We can fail to see what God has for us through His Spirit. And if we do so, we run the risk of missing out on what God has for us through His Word as He leads us through His Spirit. And my, my prayer for us today, I, again, I've given you a lot of information. These, these messages recently have just been very packed. But my prayer for us today is that we would take all of this and, and understand some things from it. Understand where we stand. Understand why we stand there. And understand then how we can take what we have learned and give it to others. Let's pray.